Hello fish keepers, Cam here from thefishroom.co.nz and welcome to episode 3 of the Aquarium Frenzy podcast. In today's episode we're talking to Dr. David Paul, the creator of the Fish Science Fish Food brand. We discuss the reasons behind him creating this fish food, some of the ingredients that he puts in and why he uses them, and a lot of other really interesting bits and pieces and facts about the fish food industry. I really hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. So sit back, enjoy, have a good one, happy fish keeping, and catch you later. All right, so today as a special guest, we have got Dr. David Paul from Fish Science with us today. Um, I'm very excited about this. Um, We've got a bunch of questions to ask him. uh, And if you have any questions uh, while watching this, please feel free to ask them as well. Chuck them in the comments and we'll get through to them as well. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate your time. No, it's a pleasure. It's, it, I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Okay, so let's, let's kick this off. So um, you just want to give us a bit of an overview of who you are, your education, uh, your time in the hobby, and you know, sort of where you've been and, and who you've worked with and all that sort of stuff, please. Yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, that, that could take a while, I guess. But no, I, my involvement in the in the fish keeping hobby started when I was, I think, six or seven with some some goldfish, uh, goldfish that I won from from a fair. And we ended up keeping them for about 20, 25 years in total. Wow. Um, but so that was, you know, too many years ago. But my my. Uh, I went to university. I, I you know, I, I enjoyed fish, enjoyed aquatic life did a degree in zoology and then a, a PhD looking at um, a disease of koi carp, a, a tapeworm disease of koi carp. And that led me into my my career in fish keeping. I was lucky enough to be asked to work for Tetra here in the UK. Um, started off running their information service and answering consumer queries. And that was back in the day where all the questions came in by letter. Um, so we used to um, used to answer about five thousand letters a year, um, just just hand either handwriting or or sending comp slips with uh, with answers on. Um, I moved from there to be to to be involved in the marketing side and then sales and and eventually spent um, well, I spent nearly thirty years with Tetra in the UK, but ended up running the UK and the South African businesses for them, and that was up to about. 10 years ago when I, I left Tetra and a couple of years later started Fish Science. And uh, Fish Science is a, is, is a company that started really with a, a conversation over a drink with a, a, an ex-colleague uh, of mine who was working for a, a company that make or produce insects, uh, insect meal. And his question to me was, um, do you think insects would be a good ingredient for fish foods? And it was kind of one of those light bulb moments that um, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. That's what they eat in the wild. So that's really where it started. We we started looking at insect meal and using it in fish foods, and the fish science range has developed from there. All right. Awesome. Um, okay, so you've obviously touched on on how you you began fish science. Uh, what's what's your kind of your vision behind it, or uh, your goals that you've you've got within within the fish science business itself. I think for me, there are already a, a, a lot of good foods on the market. Um, but what I was looking to do with the fish science range was to try and provide an, a natural food to try and recreate more or less what the fish would eat in the wild. Now, in a way, that's impossible because, you know, we can't go out and get exactly the same worms and snails and algae and plants that, that fish would eat in the Amazon or in, in India or wherever. But what we can do is make sure that the ingredients that we use in the foods represent those natural ingredients. So obviously the insect meal is the the, the, the hero ingredient. That's the what we center all the, the uh, formulae around. But what we've also tried to do is use other natural ingredients. So things like um, natural color enhancers, things like paprika, krill, spirulina, even purple carrot as, as ingredients that just naturally boost the color. And then also use natural things to support the immune system of the fish. So again, things like garlic, beta glucans from yeast, omega oils, all support the fish, support the immune system and help them remain healthy. And that, that's really been my key is not 
to, to try and come up with a, a, a good range of foods um, using good ingredients, not, you know, foods that are any better in, in many ways than some of the others that are on the market, but just approach that feeding from a different angle, which is yeah. the insect angle and the natural angle. Excellent. Okay. Um, so what's the actual process of making up your formulas? Um, obviously, you've got, I don't want to dive into too many trade secrets or anything like that, but sort of how do you kind of concoct your concoctions pretty much? Um, it, it, it varies. Uh, you know, sometimes it's you, you, you find an ingredient that you think would work well. Um, a good example would be the, the oak and algae wafer that we've uh -huh. got. You know, that that's a, a product that we had an algae wafer for a long time, um, which, which was a, you know, it was a good food. It sold well. It had, um, it used spirulina and chlorella algae. It was, you know, based on, on algae ingredients. Um, yeah, the, the, John's got the oak and algae wafers there. But a lot of people were saying that, you know, they, they were, they wanted, a wood component to the to, to the tab uh, to the wafer, and and there were some companies that were using wood. You know, they were they were actually using bits of wood in the food just to provide that um, that more grazing behaviour that some of the panaks and percultia and you know some of the the, um, the the bristle noses that we keep would use. But interestingly, people that have put, branches into their their aquaria was saying you know really quickly that, that those species would rip all the bark off the off the branches and then they kind of lose interest and yeah. then they put more bark more, more twigs in with bark on and they you know the fish would become really active and then they'd lose interest again so it just it just pointed to the fact that maybe the oak bark or bark would be a good ingredient and it and it's and that's what it's proved you know we we added it to the formula. We tweaked the formula a little bit as well from what it was. And the oak and algae wafers are, are the result. The trials we've done have been great. When you actually put them in with other algae wafers, there's, there's something about oak bark that just kind of triggers the fish's interest. And they all sort of go the way of the, the oak bark wafer. Yep. Well, and, okay. you know, and, and I think that's, in a way, it's difficult to say what, what I don't very often do is sit down with a blank piece of paper and say, oh, you know, how are we going to come up with whatever? There's usually yeah. something there because, you know, like a lot of things in this, this hobby, in this world, it, there's not a lot that's completely new. It's usually a case of taking something and, and trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. yeah, that, make, that makes absolute sense. Just your adaption and say everything sort of does this thing. Yeah. And it's in, so I was going to say, I think um, the, the relationship with the community um, and fish keepers, breeders, retailers, and getting their direct feedback is something that's really important when you're developing and, and tweaking certain recipes for your foods, because you're hearing, hearing it from the, you know, from the ground up, so to speak, people that, all different kinds of people that are in it every day, they know their fish, they know what they like and don't like, and, and when they get that back to you, that's the best possible input you could get, really, because um, you then translate that into either changing it or stopping it or, or adding something in as well. And absolutely. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Because what we've, um, if you do, you know, standard research work on, on a new food, that would involve having a, a bear tank with a, a fixed number of fish and you would, you'd have n numerous replicates. And that's great. And that gives you some useful feedback on on the food does it work do the fish grow on it do they survive do they they color up well mm -hmm. but a bear tank isn't a tank that most fish keepers would recognize mm -hmm. you know most yeah. of us have loads of fish in the tank we probably overfeed we probably underfilter or have too many fish in there and the food's got to work there as well it's no good just being a, a scientific food that works in a in a laboratory condition it's got to work in everybody's household so that, like John said, the feedback that we had from people that are those normal fish keepers has been invaluable in actually tweaking the foods and just making sure they work well. Absolutely. Um, and just before we move on, what, one thing that I think is the strong point, or one of the strong points of fish science is the relationship that you've got with 
the community on a personal level. Um, in the UK, I mean, every fish society in, in the country knows Dave. Um, and they know everything yeah. because you've been visiting and, and you've got a really close relationship with all the societies. Um, and before COVID, you, you would spend half your life driving up and down the shops, <laughs> but still coming and doing talks in the evening and, and visiting events at the weekends and stuff. And, you know, I, th I do believe that's one of the one of the, um, the things that people like about, they feel a, a personal relationship with the brand as well, sometimes. So. But I, I, I think, you know, fish science is a business. And and for me, as a as somebody that's been involved in the hobby for an awful long time, what, what I needed to do to make my business work was take advantage of the things that I, you know, that, that I had an advantage with mm -hmm. and, and the relationship with societies I'd had when I was at Tetra. So it was easy to, you know, to keep those going. And, and actually, you know, spending time talking to people and getting them to like the foods and support the foods has has, has worked really well. You know, I, yeah. it was a it was a plan right from the the word go to try and get people to try it because word of mouth with people that know what they're talking about is just invaluable. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's that's worked really well for us here in the UK. And yeah, definitely. Cool. Okay, so. Just on, on the insects that you use, uh, what insects do you use and, and why have you decided to, to go with them in particular? Yeah, with it, we started with black soldier fly, which is Hermetia elucens. That's the uh, the scientific name for it. And that was the one that was kind of the, that light bulb moment that I mentioned before. Um, that's a, an insect that is cultured in fairly large numbers and, and initially it was cultured by a company or we used the insects cultured by a company called Protix in Holland and they they were producing them uh, they're producing them or were producing them in kind of prototype factory to get to be able to develop a way of producing large numbers of insects and large amounts of insect meal with a view not only to you know, to feed in fish, but also in aquaculture, in pet foods, and, and ultimately in human foods. Mm -hmm. So their their aim is to produce enough insect meal for it to be used as a major component in, in human diets. Oh, um, we used that initially, and we were the first ones to commercialise it, because at the time when we started, insect meal wasn't authorized to be used in anything in the in the human food chain so it couldn't be used in aquaculture couldn't be used in in poultry or game game birds or anything like that so it was a nice nice way to get started using it what we've done since then and and it's it seems to have worked pretty well is we i think there's a recognition that fish in the wild don't just eat one insect you know they eat a whole range of different insects and one way that we can improve the food is by adding more than one insect to the to the formulae so we've started using things like mealworm larvae um, silkworm larvae chironomid larvae and also not insects i appreciate but things like worm meal yep. so we're trying to find more ingredients and, and part of that came from a a, a conference that I um, was involved in well, several years ago where the guys were explaining that there's actually thousands of insects that we could culture and by choosing the right insects and feeding them on the right feeds you could yeah. end up with a completely different kind of nutritional profile of the ingredients and so you know if you wanted something that was high in a particular amino acid there's probably an insect that fits that bill and it's yeah. just a case of breeding it um so I, i'm not in that fortunate position of being able to breed large numbers of insects but what we can do is pick what is being bred and and you know and try and them add, add add them to the food okay awesome um so what's what's the actual process of making the food like from sort of harvest to assuming it gets all mixed together and cooked and pressed or how, how does that whole process kind of come about the, I mean, the, the foods themselves are made for, firstly by obviously getting all the ingredients together, and and generally, um, you know, you you want the ingredients to be 
quite finely milled. Yeah. Um, so it, so in the majority of cases, we end up with a, a either a meal or a flour of it might be um, fish meal, it might be insect meal, it might be um, cereal, it could be krill, shrimp, all, all of them are, are finely ground. They're then mixed together and made into a, a slurry, which if you were making flakes, it goes onto a heated roller that dry them out quite quickly at a, a just, just over 100 degrees centigrade. So it yeah. cooks them quite quickly, sterilizes them so there's no bacteria or, or any nasties in there. And you end up with sort of a great big flake. It's a well, it's a sheet of uh, of food that then gets broken down into smaller bits and, and packaged. Um, things like pellets and um, sticks and granules are all made using extrusion processes. So they're similar slurry. There are slight differences, but that gets pushed through a, a high pressure grid effectively, and and it produces the. The, the pellet sticks or granules depending on how quickly it's cut right so so it's most of it involves you know making this slurry heating it up so that it's it, it's um it's sterile you've got rid of the bacteria and viruses and anything nasty that could be in there and then just uh, you know producing it into a flake a granule a, um, a powder or whatever format you want yep excellent Okay, um, so how have you tested your products? So I, know, I know you do do some testing and you sort of uh, hand them out to a few different people to try and do that, but yeah, what, what's the process behind how you how you test test your products before they go to market? Well, I, I guess when we first started Fish Science, we, we trialled the foods or, or tested the foods with an independent company because um, what, what I wanted to do was to have something that I could demonstrate that the food stood up to the other products on the on the market. Um, so we actually tested it. There's, there was a company in South Wales who took the flake foods that we did, the tropical and the goldfish flake, and tested it against the market leaders, feeding a, a, to a, excuse me, a range of different fish species. And they went through those, those um, laboratory trials that we talked about. They measured food conversion ratios, amount of waste produced, growth color etc so we did those scientific tests initially and the food came out really well it, it um it was as good as the the market leaders using different ingredients in certain key ways it was just consistently better than the market leaders which was great um but then what we've also done as as um as john alluded to we've we now take a lot of the foods and just get them trialed by either stores or individual fish keepers who are specialists in that area. Mm -hmm. So the, the Corridoras tablets would be a great example where we we produced it. We had a tablet um, which worked. The fish liked it. But I spoke and, and worked with a guy called Ian Fuller who breeds and, and imports and, and grows and photographs. That's that. Yeah, he, he he's like Mr. Corridoras. So we gave him the tablets and asked him to try them and and give us some feedback. And and he did that. And we tweaked the the format of the tablets, then tweaked the what was in them slightly. And we've ended up with a, a tablet now that you know when you drop it into a tank full of Corridoras, you just end up with a, a ball of Corridoras, or wow. struggling to get to the the food first. Yeah. Wow. So it's, you know, and and I think that's the kind of the ideal process so yeah. you you trial it you tweak it and you end up with a, a product that that is better but the, but it's never perfect you know there's always ways that we could tweak and improve and that's that's part of the development process that we're going through now um is there any truth in the rumor that vitamins and minerals diminish during the, the process of making the food and that but the shelf life uh, becomes very short when you're actually in a container and, and sitting on a shelf ready to go, or is that just one of those sort of old wives' tales kind of thing? It's, I mean, it's a bit of both. I mean, when you make a food, if you warm it to the temperatures you have to warm it to to get rid of bacteria um, and sterilize it, then yes, you denature some of the vitamins. Um, that that's just, it's a bit like cooking vegetables and you know boiling vegetables in a 
on, on a cooker. Um, so yeah, things like vitamin C are denatured by high temperatures and, and, and you know, if you boiled it for too long, you'd get rid of it all. But what you can do to um, allow for that is that you can firstly minimize the, the length of time. So it's the bare minimum that's needed to make sure that the food is, is, um, is safe. And, and hasn't got bacteria and fungi and, and other microorganisms that would just decompose it once it's made. Yep. And you can also add vitamin premixes to it. So you can add a vitamin mix that boosts the levels so that once you've gone through this process, you've got the, the stated levels in, in, the, in the foods. Mm-hmm. Once the food goes into the tubs and the tubs are sealed, then we know through tests that the food will after three years will still have the stated levels of vitamins in it so you've got no issue short term with the vitamins denaturing what i can't guarantee though is as soon as you open that tub then you you lose all control and and the biggest uh, enemy of fish foods is is moisture and oxygen so the moment you open the tub, and particularly if you do it in a, you know, near an aquarium or in a fish room, you've got moist, humid air, and the foods, the, the foods generally contain about six, six to eight percent moisture, and that's how what, what one of the main ways that we keep them, the vitamins from denaturing is there's no moisture there, that so there's no bacteria, no fungi, they can't survive at those levels of moisture. Mm-hmm. But that does mean that they're like a sponge. So as soon as you open the lid, the moisture gets in there and, and you know, you get the moisture level starts to increase. And if you're not careful, you know, you can end up with the, the foods being denatured simply because of the moist, moist air that's got in there. And the wow. same with oxygen. So generally, people tend to keep buy foods that will last about three months. And that's 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 fine. After three months, the food should still be fine. But if you're buying big pots and they're going to last a lot longer, I'd, I'd always recommend kind of decanting into a smaller pot and use from a smaller pot and keep the big one out of the direct sunlight in a cool place, in a fridge if, if needs be, um, but with the lid on or, or in a grip seal bag, something to get rid of the oxygen and the moist air so it doesn't go off. And then you'll you'll keep to your three year shelf life. That makes a lot of sense. Um, how do you work out the nutrition that a specific fish needs for when you are kind of creating your formulas? Like obviously some fish are going to need more protein, more algae or, or what have you. So how have you kind of worked that out as you've created your foods? I, I think it, in, in some ways it, a lot of that work has been done. So, you know, I, I, fish science didn't start from from nowhere in that there was already companies out there that had done a lot of work and and there was a lot of research being done on what what nutrition zebradanios for example needed or or some of the algae eating species so knowing that it was then a case of using the right ingredients to replicate what sort of diet they needed so you know if, if it was a um uh, a molly for example then they obviously need a much more vegetable rich diet so they still eat insects so the insect meal could go in there but you would you can certainly add more algaes more vegetable material um things like spinach things like um chlorella algae spirulina algae you can have kelp all those sort of things that would would lean the the food to being more vegetable based and, and, and in a way, it's not that much different to to us. You know, if if we want a diet that's more vegetarian based, if you're if you are vegetarian vegan, then you just use the the ingredients that that match that vegan requirement. And and it's very similar with with the fish foods. And obviously, if you're if you're dealing with um, sort of carnivorous or piscivorous cichlids then you go the opposite way you're adding a lot more herring meal for example or shrimp krill insect meal worm meal so it's it's a case of 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 using from the the list of ingredients that are available to replicate the sort of diet that you want knowing and i need i i think there's um 
that there's a bit of a misconception. Well, no, let me let me rephrase that. You could make a food for every single fish, you know. So zebra danios are probably more. There's more known about zebra danios than any other fish. So you could come up with exactly the right formula for a zebra danio, and that would be ninety five percent the same as it is for a, a, a neon tetra, and probably similar to that for a, for many other fish, but you haven't got enough space on your shelves and me as a manufacturer wouldn't sell enough of each one if we had one food for every every fish species so there's a bit of a compromise in that we produce certain foods and then fish keepers that know what they're talking about or, or want to really specialize on a particular fish will pick two or three foods and mix them or feed them together to to give a more more precise diet yep You've kind of answered the next question within that, so that was awesome. So thank you. Um, mm -hmm. You've kind of also touched a little bit on, on this question, but I'll, I'll sort of ask it anyway. Um, how do you kind of formulate your your food for like community based when you know that, say for example, people have got tetras and corridors in, in an aquarium, or you know, autosynclus and um, something slightly more carnivorous? So how, how do you kind of balance balance your food to make everything kind of uh, full spectrum in, in the sense of like your tropical flakes and things like that? I, I mean, I, th I think with um, a basic tropical flake or a, inverted commas, a, a, a basic granule, you can, you can get something that would be, would be 90% okay for most fish. So, you know, with, with a, with a tropical flake, for example, that we do, we've got four different flakes in there that are all slightly different. Mm -hmm. um, so they provide a, a, a good, general diet for for a, a community aquarium if you've got you know corridoris in there then they will feed on the flakes when they drop to the bottom but you can also create a little bit more interest in in the way the fish behave and the way you interact with them by having tablets and dropping tablets in every now and again and, and just changing from flake one day to a tablet and then back to flake and just you use different foods that either with the ingredients that are in there or the format will suit different fish so th there will be corridoras definitely you know things like the the, the 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 fairly common bronze corries uh, uh, their diet is probably not a whole lot different to a, a an inverted commas a, a general midwater species but they just want it on the bottom and the midwater fish wants it in the higher reaches of the water so by making one in a tablet and one in a flake form, you you can you know you can provide that diet. Um, I would always you know recommend using a range of different foods, and that might obviously the fish science foods form one part of that, but maybe you can use other foods as well so that you get in you know different types of food to feed to your fish. But you also come you know there are also the the live foods or the frozen foods that you can add to supplement that as well so you know just feeding one flake to the fish all the time in a, in a community tank works but if you can supplement that with with blood worms or mosquito larvae or, or daphnia or, or whatever it might be yeah. uh, pieces of cucumber you know there's a whole range of treats that you can add to the tank that shouldn't form the main diet but can supplement the main diet to make it a lot more interesting mm -hmm. and tailored to the type of fish you know, you mentioned mentioned the the bristle noses. You could feed algae wafers, but it's also great to see them eating mushrooms or, or um, cucumber or bits of lettuce or bits of paprika or you know whatever it might be. There was somebody um, just before we move on to the next one, Camp. When you're talking about live fish, somebody on YouTube had asked a question. Um, they've got kind of outdoor water. Um, vats, I think they're called, but um, we've got bloodworm in them, like wild bloodworm, I suppose, and yeah. they're concerned about introducing that to the aquarium um, for parasites and things. But I think if that's of a closed water, you know, it's not part of the wild. So, how would you just scoop that up and put it in, or is there a method that you can kind of? Really I would just, yeah, I'd, I'd put it straight in. I mean, I, I, I would treat it like a treat you know mm -hmm. it, it, so for us chocolate is a treat you, you shouldn't be eating it you know 
10 hours a day or maybe you should but you know it, it's not something that you would eat all the time but once or twice a week it's great and you'd have no issue at all if it's from a a, a vat outside that where there's no fish then there's very 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 little risk of of introducing disease into your tank the only possible risk would be from wild birds so if that vat was you know not just a small vat but a huge vat with fish eating birds visiting it then there is a chance that you could you, you could have eggs from the fish eating birds getting into snails or whatever that you could then introduce to your tank but that's a it is a really minimal risk and and if the vat is you know just a a small vat then there's no problem there there's absolutely no risk but that that certainly is the risk if you went into the wild and harvested like you know the, what tropical fish and goldfish used to be fed on which is you know you went out to a lake or a pond and dip netted and, and brought the food back <laughs> then there is a slight risk of introducing parasites because there are fish present and there are wild birds present that, that you know could act as hosts for for parasites mm -hmm. but you need fish in in that vat for for there to be any risk at all I would take it as a great, it's a, it's a source of live food, yeah, take advantage of it. Okay, that was uh, DF Fish NZ on YouTube. So thanks for mentioning that in the comments and great answer, Dave, thanks. All right, so uh, when we're sort of looking at a poor diet versus a good diet for fish, what are some of the things that people should be looking for in the ingredients list or on the back of the food containers uh, that would kind of go from what is a, a good or, or a bad diet for for the fish that they're feeding? Yeah, I mean, and that's a great question because it is really difficult to, to, to look on a pack of food and know it's good or bad. I mean, the, the, the price is a good indicator. Um, you can't make something good out of cheap ingredients or, or, or it is very, very difficult to do so. Um, so and, and the problem is if you're using poor ingredients then what you tend to find is that that food won't be digested very well by the fish so you end up having to feed more to give it the right amount of nutrients uh, but there's a lot more waste and then you've got the problems with lots of fish waste and uneaten food that you've then got to take out of the tank so when you're looking for a good food um recommendations great i would always you know speak to the, the aquatic store and find out what they recommend and what they use because that's that's a good guide if it comes down to looking at the ingredient list look for things like fish meal insect meal shrimp krill algaes sometimes things are, are, are sort of combined together so you may not find exactly what fish meal is being used it might on the pack might say fish and um and fish derivatives mm -hmm. and that that's just a way of of the manufacturer protecting exactly what's in their formula um oh, you okay. might find like mollusks and crustaceans usually means um shrimp krill mussel those sort of things but they yeah. may not say exactly what's in it because again if if you if you tell somebody exactly what's in the formula anybody can go along and just produce pretty much the same thing. So there's an element of, of trying to protect. What you should be looking to avoid, I would recommend, are, are things like um, bone meal, uh, meat and meat derivatives, um, chicken, or ch chicken and chicken derivatives. And they're used in less expensive foods because they're less expensive ingredients. And you'll find, although they, the fish will eat them, and, and in small quantities they're fine, the trouble is that they don't they don't meet all the nutritional requirements of the fish and you end up with a lot more waste so I'd, I'd just be wary of those things like cereal you'll find in most foods and and cereal in in is very often one of the top ingredients again no problem there's some great cereals that can be added to to fish foods but what you want to find is not that there's cereals and all the other um rice and soya and all, all those in the top few ingredients because that would usually mean that it's a a, a fairly bland food with mm -hmm. relatively small amounts what you'll find I, I i believe it's the same in in new zealand as it as it is in europe but on the ingredients list in on a fish food 
they're listed in order of amount in the food so you would be looking for if you wanted um a food for um piscivorous fish or fish that insecti insectivorous fish you'd want things like insect meal shrimp and krill to be fairly well up that list not right down at the bottom where it could be you know 0.1 percent of the food is is shrimp mm -hmm. okay cool so that, that kind of leads on to the next two questions um you've, you've kind of answered through but I'll, I'll keep going with them is what would be considered a, a filler in, in food and you know these things like soy and potatoes and that kind of stuff and, and are these always required in fish food or are they just there to bulk it up or are they binders or, or how does that that kind of thing work? I, I think you you can use them, if they're used in the right way, then they're, they're great in the food. So things like potato, um, I remember a, a, a guy who I, I admire a lot, Dr. David Ford, who actually developed the Aquarian range of foods he used potato in some of the diets that he'd got because there are there are nutrients in the potatoes which the fish can utilize yep. so just the obviously we we see potato as being something that just fills us up but in small yep. amounts in the food in the right way it can really benefit the food soy is another one that um, gets a bad press but actually soy is is a useful ingredient and is a great color enhancer it's really good for the black in the in uh, black coloration in the fish. So again, you probably don't want it to be top of the list, but having it in there is is really useful. Uh, some some of the ingredients that you would add could be described as bulk bulk bulking agents, um, but you'd want them in there because you need the food to be in a format that the fish can eat. So if you've got a tablet. You know, if you just put all the goodies in and try to make a tablet, it, it probably wouldn't stick together. So you need things in there that will allow that tablet to um, to form a tablet and, and to stay in a tablet form. So, so it's almost like a, a balancing it nutrition-wise as well as manufacturing type of thing at the same time, just sort of making it do what it needs to do the way it needs to do it. Yes, I, I, th I think that's exactly, you know, you just having all the right ingredients is one part of of making a nice food putting it in a format that the fish can consume it is another part and you've got to balance those two things together but what you shouldn't be doing is just you know just having the the bulking aid they're, they're the usually the less expensive nutrients or, or ingredients to the food so you don't want all of those you do need the goodies in there you do need the shrimp meal the krill the spirulina the chlorella you know the, the various um the bits that do what you want from the food. Yeah. Okay. So just sort of leading on with meal, obviously uh, meal is in pretty much all all fish foods in one form or another. Um, you could have kind of touched base before. It's a little bit to keep the manufacturer's formula sort of secret, calling it sort of fish meal or shrimp meal or whatever. So <coughs> is that just essentially a, a ground up product into a flour or a, or a, a small crumble or whatever you want to, where you explain it, that's just, sort of been put in as opposed to fish meal is like guts and bones and all that scales sort of byproduct sort of thing is that does that make sense on how i'm asking that it it, it does yeah and, and I, I i'll answer it in two ways first of all when you're making a a food you want to 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 make it um a food that's fairly consistent you want to be mixing powders so yeah. what you don't want is big lumps of fish or or insect or or cucumber or whatever it might be the best way of getting the food so that it's every bit has got some of the the right nutrition in it is to is, is to get cucumber powder is to get shrimp powder is to get fish powder and mix it all together so foods are made with powders or meal as it's called you know the difference between a powder and a meal i'm not sure exactly what it is but a meal would generally be slightly coarser than a than a powder but right, okay. yeah you just you just mix them all together that's the way that you end up with that slurry that can make a good flake or can make a a, a good pellet tablet whatever it might be um just while i'm on that that topic sometimes you don't want it to be a really fine powder we use coarse ground algae in some of the foods simply because not all of that coarse ground algae will be digested by the fish and it provides the roughage that they need for their intestines to work 
so in some of the the mini algae wafers are a good example where we make we use coarse ground algae rather than algae flour just because it provides that that roughage component to the diet which you know any any vegetable eating animal needs a lot of roughage to make its intestine function efficiently yeah. um, so then just to answer the second part of your question where you've where you're using things like fish meal that could be all sorts of things it could be trash fish in in some foods that's what's used it's just fish that are the bycatch from another industry it could be um it could be byproduct from the human industry we we use a lot of herring meal and the herring meal we use is the the parts of the herring when they they take a fillet from each side and what's left is a lot of meat with some bone and like you say the, the intestine and contents and we use that um so it's not it's a byproduct which you know meets the sustainability kind of criteria that i'm, I'm quite keen on um you can also use the same from aquaculture so sometimes it's aquaculture feeds that are used by, by other companies the you you can also use the you know the prime cuts of the food of, of the fish but that generally if you're using herring for example if you use the you know the, the herring that are the size that could be used for human consumption then that's a really expensive ingredient and you i don't think you get a, well you don't get a great deal more from that than you would get from using the the bits that are just not able to be consumed by humans yeah well but that makes makes all valid valid sense obviously from a business point as well as the nutritional point there's no point of paying for something more that's not really giving you that that balance with it yeah i, I think also you know one of the things that i'm I'm keen on with the food is that we do we are environmentally friendly we are the ingredients are sustainable and we try and use things that are either able to be cultured or or, or grown in a sustainable way or as as with the the herring meal that are part of another industry that we can just take the the bits that are you know are really good but just aren't what most people want to consume that's that's fantastic as well. It's a, you know, a great approach, less waste, and and you know, exactly, yeah. dying for a, for one reason, might as well be can completely used if possible. Absolutely, yeah. yes, that's true. Cool. Okay, so how do your formulas change from one food to another? Like, say, for example, you've got your goldfish pellets, and then you'll have um, your worm pellets. Do you start scratch from everyone, or do you have a base of what they're going to be, and then adjust and tinker for? whatever it is that you're making for um a little bit of both with, with the goldfish foods it's that the, there is a, a an element of what's in the foods that is similar from food to food and we just change the format of the food and in changing the format change the ingredients slightly so we, we with the goldfish foods the first food we we had was a, a flake food um and I got the guys from the Goldfish Society of Great Britain who produce, grow and show a lot of, uh, of the really ornate, ornamental goldfish. And they tried it for me. They said before they even tried it that they, they didn't really like flake. Um, uh -huh. They felt that the best foods for the, the ornamental fancy goldfish was a pellet of one form or another. But they tried it. We, we tweaked it a little bit and we ended up with a, a food that was great for basic goldfish common goldfish what they wanted was a sinking goldfish pellet um, and they wanted one that was roughly two millimeter diameter that sank so that softened quickly but sank so that the fish could eat from underneath the water and it was possible from the goldfish flake formula to just tweak it a little bit and end up with a a, a formula that worked for the goldfish but also worked for the for the, the ornamental fish that want to feed from underneath the water um, and then we also have one that floats and and that was again it's a lovely formula in a way that's that was developed to allow children to feed their fish because the, the traditional way of, of of kids starting in the hobby was to to keep a goldfish but the the the, the age-old advice is always to feed a pinch of flake well a pinch of flake for a kid can be anything from like not enough to a week's worth all at once. Yep. Whereas with these pellets, what we could say was feed 
one pellet per inch of fish or a couple of pellets a day or three pellets a day it, it was something that was very measurable and, and avoided that overfeeding problem mm. okay. on, on the opposite side though what you know goldfish flake doesn't give you a lot of of, of links into a corridorus tablet for example yeah. so when it came to foods that were completely different then we're looking at, at a more unusual or, or a, a different route to to market and a different way of producing a food so there we would be looking at what the fish need and then in a on what format they need it in and then trying to develop the foods to meet that Criteria. yep excellent so just something that sort of came off the cuff as you were saying that i've always wanted to know how without giving away too much trade secrets again how you make a floating pellet to a sinking pellet for some reason i've always thought it's either a little bit lighter in the pellet or it's somehow got more air in it how do you, how does that kind of come about well the pellets are made pellets are made using an extruder and an extruder essentially is um is something that heats up a slurry of ingredients and pushes it through a, a a series of little holes and then we have what's called a cutter that just cuts the these tubes of food in in small bits and that's the pellet and you use different diameter holes to make different amounts of food Depending on the ingredients and depending on the pressure that you put the pellet under, you can end up with a different density of pellet. And that will allow you to have a floating pellet if the density is quite light. So generally with that, you'd warm it up, you'd push it through the extruder, and it would you'd have ingredients that allowed it to expand quite quickly, which would make it a less dense pellet. Right, okay. Whereas by pushing it under a higher pressure, and having a slightly denser mix, you would end up with a denser pellet that would sink. The real challenge is is getting that in between. So what you don't, you know, what you want is a floating pellet in a way is easy because anything that's less dense than water floats. Um, and, a, yeah. and a really fast sinking pellet is easy because anything that is really more dense than water sinks. But what most of us want is a pellet that just ever so slowly sinks down in the water and attracts all those fish and that becomes more difficult because that's you know that that's a fine margin between it floating and or it's sinking like a rock so there it's a case of uh, you know generally the extruder has to be running for a period of time to get the right temperature to get the right pressure and then you get a batch of food that is at the right density excellent cool well i'm very excited that i've now learned that thank you very much <laughs> Uh, okay, so we've, we've only got a couple more questions to go, so we're, we're getting to where we need, we need to be. Um, everybody wants, like, bright, vibrant, colourful fish in their aquariums at home. In your opinion, what's the best way of, of achieving this? Well, to, to answer the question, first of all, it, it's worth knowing that fish can't make their own colour. So, you know, the, it, fish in the wild and fish in your aquarium need to eat the colour pigment that they then use to make the, the fantastic colors that, that we see. And the way that you can encourage the best coloration in your fish is, is, a, is a combination of feeding the right food, providing the right environment and the right background. So yeah, John's sort of flagging up the, the krill flake. Um, krill that's is a great salmon. See, that's my secret weapon for all fish that's got red on it. I've yeah. never had a food that's brought red out like that before. Amazing. Brilliant, that's great. But with, with the red colour, um, you need to be feeding a, a food that's got something in it that will boost the red coloration. And krill is a great natural red enhancing ingredient. You've also got things like paprika, um, chlorella algae is another one, shrimp is another. Um, so if you've got krill, shrimp, paprika, chlorella spirulina those sort of ingredients in the food then that would be really good for the red coloration and a lot of most of the fish science foods have got that the, the krill food is really really high in krill and is a great way of boosting the reds and the oranges mm. if you were looking for things like um yellow then things like purple carrots um, again the chlorella and spirulina algae are really good at boosting the yellow in the in the fish and then for black and and, and interestingly blue then things like soy, fish meal, um, again, the algaes are great. They've got the the, um, the melanin or, or the, the ingredient that will quickly form into melanin in the fish. 
so right. you end up with that color if you fed a really bland food with no color enhancers then what you'd find is that the fish wouldn't have the the color pigment in its body to be able to be the the bright color that we want but color is not just what you feed so you've got to feed the color pigment and then they've got the if you like the bricks and mortar that they can make the color with but fish also try and will only look at their best color if they're healthy and are not under stress so you need to make sure that water conditions are good and and um and they're not being stressed not being chased around they're not you know being being caught and and harassed and then the background is is key if you put fish against a white background they'll try and merge in with a background and you'll find that they they go really pale if you put them against a black background then they their colors expand in in their color pigment cells and they become a lot better colored and you you can do that that trial you know the it's an easy thing to do if you if you've got a tank just put some white paper on the side and the back of the tank and leave it for a couple of hours and then photograph the fish and then replace that with a black background and again leave it a couple of hours and photograph the fish and you can see in your photographs you'll see a difference between the color and it's just in the black background the pigment in the fish's pigment cells spreads out so they become a lot more intensely colored yeah cool. it's like neon tetras in the wild the darker the water the more vibrant their blue becomes and the red yeah. And you put them in a, a clear water, a white water environment, and they, they drain right out. And the, I mean, the water quality is important. So if, if you know, John mentioned the, the tetras, if you kept neon tetras, um, cardinal tetras, for example, in a, in a hard alkaline water, they might survive, um, and, you know, they might, they might do okay, they might grow well, but the, they don't like it, and their colour would never be as good as keeping them in soft acidic water where they're just more at ease, they're more relaxed the, and the colour pigment spreads in those colour cells. And th those colour cells are quite big. Um, if you have a look at things like zebradanios, if they're not in perfect conditions, you, you can actually see that that kind of lovely stripe can actually be made up of loads of little dots and that's the individual colour cells in the, on the skin of the fish. Right, okay. That's yeah. I I was vaguely aware of of the dark uh, backgrounds kind of affecting that, and that's purely for my time. When I had Frontosa and the dark the, the dark background basically made them incredibly dark, and I thought for them in particular a lighter coloured background would be really good. But um, sort of now you've spoken about it, I you know remember having darker backgrounds on some of my tetras, and they've they've really kind of popped. So you know that kind of makes makes a lot more sense now as to why. Yeah, it's interesting. As uh, I mean, like a lot to do with 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 fish and and kind of the natural world. It's not always as simple as just making it a dark background. You you can probably get some of the best colours in in fish where you expose them to natural sunlight. Yes. Um, you know, people that are, are breeding tetras and and some of the smaller cichlids expose their tanks to morning sunlight. And you get superb coloration in the fish, but if you just, you know, bombard them with 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 light and there's no and a, and a white background and white gravel, then they they rapidly lose their color. They just try to merge in with the background because yeah. they're not they don't feel comfortable standing out. And of course, a neon tetra struggles to to merge in with a white background, but it goes as pale as it possibly can. It's noticeable in shrimps as well. If you put like white sand down, um, shrimps are pale. But when you put a black substrate, the, like the especially red cherry shrimp. I know you guys don't have shrimps. Um, I always forget that, but uh, <laughs> it's very noticeable in the shrimps because they almost become transparent when it's a white substrate. Yeah. Which is crazy, and 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 shrimp and crustacean coloration is very similar to fish coloration. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it can also be impacted by hormones and, and the nervous system. So, you know, some of the best coloration you'll see, which just overrides everything, is when the fish are either dominant or submissive or they're getting ready to breed. You know, yeah. that's when they're, they're at their absolute best. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the other bits, they, they need the components to be able to do that. So if, they're, if you haven't fed them with a good colour enhancing food, 
you know, they're not going to look as good as they possibly could. And that's yeah. you know, that's why we keep them, isn't it? It's to, it's to make yeah. them look as good as possible. Totally, yeah. Okay, so we've had a question from the floor, so to speak. Um, how do you feel about beef heart for discus coloration? Um, I mean, beef heart is a... I don't know why it's become a traditional food for, for discus, but it is worldwide. You know, people feed, feed discus on, on beef heart and discus are a species of fish that get very focused on what they feed on um so if you feed them on beef heart that's what they eat and and yep. you can feed other things and they just ignore it because it they don't recognize it as as a food so beef heart on its own i i don't think would have a big impact on the coloration it's what you add to the beef heart in the mix that will yep. give you the the color component um you know, I, I, obviously, beef heart will contain um, hemoglobin, which would would help a little bit with the coloration. Um, it's not going to do a lot for the yellows and the blues, but what you add to um, to, to, to that mix, I'm sure, would give you the colours. So, and and that, add, that those additions could be given to you when you you know when you buy the beef heart mix or you can make it by adding sometimes just by adding um some of the commercial foods some of the you know fish science foods or tetra foods or whatever it might be to the to the beef heart mix i, I uh, although i'm i've kept discus in the past and and i've i've fed them beef heart i always kind of feel that getting the discus away from being fixed on one food is quite a good idea so feeding on a granular food or a pelleted food along with the beef heart and just rotating the food around so that you you don't get the fish just focusing on it you know it's a bit like kids feeding on pizza you know if if, if all they look at is pizza as their main source of food that they ain't going to be very healthy so if you can get them to feed on a range of different things then then the kids and, and in the same way the discus will be a lot better that makes sense Okay, so we've we've pretty much come to the last last set of questions that I've got. Um, so this is basically a school of six very very quick questions, uh, kind of yes no simple fire off the top of your head. So the first one is: Do you like apples or bananas more? Apples. Uh, do you prefer horrors or romantic comedies? Um, ooh, that's a good one. Not horrors, so romantic <laughs> comedies. Probably not, but not either. But not not the horror. <laughs> yep, that's cool. Uh, tea or coffee? Tea. Okay. Uh, Batman or Superman, and I'm going to throw in a curveball of Iron Man because Iron Man is awesome. Okay, Superman. Okay. Uh, what is your unicorn fish and why? Unicorn fish. Um, I would say it would be something like Rosy Bar no, Cherry Barbs, Rosy Barbs, Cherry Barbs. I, I just, I don't know, something about them. Yep. Okay. And What's your favourite fish that you've ever kept, and why is that? Angelfish. Um, <laughs> I, I've had. Well, certainly, when I was at Tetra, I had a tank in in my office that had about a dozen angelfish, and they were just gorgeous. They they got to be they they bred well most weeks, but they just you know they were they were full size. They were just looked superb, and and they interacted so well together. They were great really good fish there's definitely something to be said about a, a, a big long tank full of a decent shoal of angels the way they interact and work together i think is is very nice as well unfortunately yeah. they kept them too small the tank yeah and, and not keep enough that, i think yeah. that's the other thing with the angels if you if you just keep one or two they they're cichlids they're quite aggressive but if you keep a you know a, a group of them together they're just just brilliant Okay, so that, that comes to the end of my questions. So once again, thank you very much for joining us. I, I do really appreciate it. Um, thank you very much for your time. And I think everyone who's watched this has definitely got something out of it. So we appreciate your time. So thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for your yeah, time as well. Um, and for the people that are here in New Zealand, um, we've got a whole bunch of fish science food to give away this weekend. So basically all you have to do is make any purchase on our website or in store, it doesn't matter how big it is, if you buy a uh, $2 uh, ear blocker, stopper, valve thing, or if you spend $5 million, it doesn't matter, we'll give you a free sample of this food. 
Uh, we're pretty heavy on the goldfish formulas. So if you've got goldfish, please uh, let us know. We can send you that as opposed to um, some tropical flakes or something along those lines. We've got some pond stuff. Uh, we've got the, the treat stuff. We've got pleco food. We've pretty much got the entire range uh, ready to, to give away. So basically from right this moment now, actually from midnight tonight, but right this moment now up until on midnight, Sunday night, any purchase will um, send you a free sample of the fish science food as well. So thank you everybody for joining us today. It's been really appreciated. Um, yes, the fish science range is available on our website, Ryan. Um, free delivery in Scotland. Uh, probably not this time, mate. Uh, so thank, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, have a good one, team. Happy fish keeping. Catch you later. Yep. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.